0: we can go ahead and get started. Um, Thanks for coming to this breakout. My name is Kelsey and um, I am currently getting my master's in Reformation Studies at Concordia Irvine. I also am the editor at 1517. Um, 1517 does some similar stuff to Mockingbird but we're a little bit different too but we love what they're doing and always love being involved with Um, stuff that they're doing. So I'm very honored and um, excited to be here with you today. Um, I'm going to start with a story from my youth, so you you will probably (coughs) know me a little bit better after this. Um, One day when I was in third grade, I was in line for recess, and my good friend Erica Sawyer turned to me, and she said that the world was going to end in approximately two years due to Y2K. I did not know what Y2K was at the time, Um, and because I fear the opinions of others, I was not about to ask Erica (laughs) for more information. So I spent the rest of the afternoon reflecting on the whole world-ending part before I could go home that night and ask my parents more about it. And I'm not sure what my parents told me and what other information I picked up from Erica, but I do know that by fourth grade, I was on high alert for the end of the world. And by the fall of fifth grade, my apocalyptic anxiety was at an all-time high. Um, Keep in mind that at this time, I was also living in Arkansas. And Arkansas is a great place. I have friends that are here from Arkansas. (laughs) It's beautiful. But there are a lot of fundamentalists that live there. And so all of these people seem to also be purporting the idea of a left-behind cataclysmic event to coincide with the turn of the millennium. Um, It seemed like everyone was preparing for the end of the world but my family, and I was also very concerned about this. So I begged my parents to invest in a bunker of some sort or some (laughs) canned vegetables or something so that we could be prepared. Um, They are very good parents, so they listened to my concerns, and I kid you not they bought two gallons <laughs> of distilled water, <laughs> 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 only two. That might have been all that was left at the grocery store, I'm not sure. Um, I've blocked out those last few days of 1999 from my memory, but I do, I do know that I did not sleep very well on New Year's Eve that, um, that year, and then I spent all of New Year's Day in deep existential angst as I watched the news to make sure every time zone avoided the rapture. (laughs) Which they did, they did, thankfully. So the moral of this story is that I am a very anxious person. I tend to worry about things that are both large and small and sometimes I feel debilitated by fear of the unknown. I think we can probably all say we've experienced some sort of anxiety in our lifetime. Um, Usually, this is caused from a mix of lack of control over our current or or future circumstances and fear of the resulting outcomes from those circumstances. Today, I want to focus on a specific type of anxiety, one that I think goes largely unnoticed despite the fact that we seem to live in a world with more anxiety and more distraction than ever before. So we're going to start by taking a closer look at Psalm 88 and then move on to address how this anxiety manifests today. A forewarning, it's about to get a little dark and full of terrors in here, but stick with me, and I promise there's light at the end of the tunnel. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 88, I'm going to just read through that entire chapter. "O O Lord, God of my salvation, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to to praise you? Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So like I said, little dark and full of terrors. Um, If you had not noticed, this is commonly known as the darkest Psalm of Lament. And for that reason, it's also often called the winter psalm. There is not a verse which leads us to believe the author has found the hope he seeks after. In short, repetitive stanzas, the author expresses his troubled spirit and feelings of isolation from his God. He cries out not only that he is isolated from God, but from his community. His neighbors and his beloved shun him. And he says that his only companion left is darkness. And that's the last we hear from him. He's overwhelmed with wrath. He draws near to the grave and to death. And he claims he has been put there by God. My friend and Old Testament scholar Chad Bird says this about Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is Psalm 23 after it's been run over by a truck. (laughs) In this Psalm, the Lord is my wolf. I am in want. He makes me lie down in the grave. He rejects my soul. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear every evil, for I am alone. It's the kind of psalm we pray when it feels like Jesus has become our enemy or we his doormat. So what is going on here? Why does the psalmist feel overwhelmed by God to the point of almost near destruction or certain destruction? Psalm 88 reminds me of a type of anxiety best described and experienced by the reformer Martin Luther. This is the all-encompassing anxiety or despair of the heart that Luther identified as unfectum throughout his lifetime. There's no exact English translation for the word unfectum. um, And even in Luther's works, it appears in many different forms. But broadly speaking, unfectum is described as the assault of sin, or of death, or of the devil, that presses on an individual's conscience. It results in feelings of despair, angst, or deep anxiety, that one cannot be reconciled to God, due both to that person's sin, as well as God's wrath against such sin. Luther says that in the midst of experiencing anfectum, God seems terribly angry, and with him the whole creation. At such a time, there is no flight, no comfort, within or without, but all things accused. At such a time, the psalmist mourns, I am cut off from thy sight. In this moment, strange to say, the soul cannot believe that it can ever be redeemed. Infection can come from either the devil in attempts to push um, a person into disbelief, or from God in order to push the inflicted to Christ. Yet in the moment, the author of Infectum infle- is less important to the person being assaulted than the experience itself. An experience which terrifies the conscience that God's law, perfectly divine and beautiful though it may be, will ultimately have the last word. Infectum for the Christian is caused by the daily war between the old man or woman in sin and the new man or woman in Christ. It manifests itself as the moments when doubt in God's character and his promises overwhelm belief. Deep-seated on as Luther knew it certainly does still plague the Christian today. Yet at the same time, I believe there's a point to be made in the fact that this deep despair feels less familiar to us. We are a culture separated from the realities of death and therefore the realities of our eternal existence. So while those in Luther's day expected to die, we expect to live. As the great Ricky Bobby from the classic Talladega Nights once said, (laughs) with advances in modern science and my high level of income, it's not crazy to think I'll live to be maybe 300. (laughs) We are all Ricky Bobbies. We expect to live for forever. And longer lifespans and better quality of life are good things. I'm simply trying to make the point that while most of us do not go to sleep at night fearing death, the fact is one day each, each of us will fall asleep for one final time. Because I do not daily wonder if I will be here today or tomorrow or next year, I also don't spend much time questioning God's judgment or the possibility of my separation from Him. These things are just not on the forefront of my mind. But I do still worry about wrath and judgment daily. just has a little bit of a different flavor. My anxieties center much less on my status before God and much more on my status before my neighbor. For example, will I succeed at work? Am I happy? Will I ever be happy? Am I enough? Am I smart enough? Am I valuable enough? Am I going to bomb this talk at Mockingbird? And what are you people going to think of me if I do? (laughs) These are my daily anxieties, all of which circle around the righteousness I so desperately hope to win from others. To echo the end of Psalm 88, do not cause my peers to shun me, O Lord. And it might be easy to assume that this shift from concern about what God thinks of me to what you all think of me is a good thing. A God in the sky, a perfect God, nevertheless, has to be more demanding than you all, right? So if I could just make my peers and my community and my world my judges, surely I would find more acceptance and more thriving, as they like to say. Yet... In our time and culture, while we may be less concerned that God could smite us at any moment, anxiety and distraction seem to be on the rise, and I believe the two go hand in hand. Implicit yet rarely rarely spoken about in our broader culture is the claim that we as a race are progressing from chaos, superstition, and religion to order, logic, and science. This myth of the secular, as it is known, claims that with each generation, man and woman rely less and less on the need for God as we become more and more self-reliant. Belief in God maybe was helpful in the past, but that's no longer the case. And so secular society has said good riddance. We are free from God, which means we are also free from his wrath. We are moving towards perfection ourselves. And therefore, we no longer need to worship a perfect being. This means we've also liberated the author of Psalm 88 from his neurotic concerns um, about being overwhelmed by God. But if this is the case, the question still remains, why are we still so anxious? It's no secret that anxiety is a growing problem. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, Anxiety is the most common mental health disorder in the United States, affecting nearly one-third of both adolescents and adults. And in the last decade, anxiety has overtaken depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling services, according to the American College Health Institute. Have we, in our incessant need to avoid anxiety, only produced more of it? The narrative today seems to be that anxiety can be conquered by the internal strength of anyone willing to tackle it. But if you are an anxious person, you might agree with me that this is not necessarily good news. How can one muster up the ability to overcome fear, worry, and concern while experiencing fear, worry, and concern? If I do not feel valuable, worthy, and capable, mustering such feelings without any intrinsic or external reason as to why they are true does not solve my worth problem. So where can good news that one is more than the value of others' opinions come from? Without a clear answer in the face of despair, it seems we are more often than not um, turning to distractions to soothe our consciences. If we can't find comfort inside ourselves, maybe we can keep ourselves just busy enough that we don't have to worry about our existential angst. Meant to be a solution to anxiety, oftentimes these distractions only serve to reinforce our despair by reflecting our anxiety back to us through the opinions of others. And social media is the perfect vehicle for this. Posts, comments, tweets... All of these become the means by which we can collect quick judgments predetermined in our minds to help calm our consciences. So we scroll, we tweet, we like, we post, and we edit. And then we sit and we wait to collect the judgment of others. Yet the irony of this is that while one day this, this process may help us feel on top of the world, There is always someone with more followers, more rage, more condemnation waiting for us the next day. Our need to distract ourselves from anxiety only produces anxiety, causing us to return to these means over and over again. And social media can be a good thing. I know that there's a lot of good that can come from it. But there are no studies, to my knowledge, on how scrolling through Instagram calms anxiety. I believe there are a lot of studies to the contrary. What we find on social media is nothing more than the wrath we so desperately wish to escape. Yet this time it's not from a good and all-perfect God. It's from sinners like you and me. This wrath reminds us both of our imperfections and our intolerances. It isolates us in waves of fear that we are alone and it keeps us from trusting one another. We make Twitter's uh, opinions and Instagram images the versions of the law that we must live up to look this way, feel this way, believe that way, vote this way. When we do this, we waffle between anxiety and the addict's insatiable need for more approval and more control. And I can tell you this is true, even in the most seemingly innocent of distractions. For instance, I do not know if you all have discovered this joy of life yet, but the best thing on Instagram currently and throughout all of time are Instagram accounts of dogs. And I'm talking about not just photos of dogs on Instagram, but the accounts that dogs have where they comment about their wonderful lives and post pictures of their paw rinse (laughs) and um, make you jealous of all their adventures. I love these accounts so much that I made one for my own dog at Topo the sheep doodle if you would like to follow along. <laughs> and I can tell you that within a couple hours of doing this, I was judging my worth based on the worth of my dog as compared to the worth of other dogs on Instagram. <laughs> and that is a very dark, dark hole that you do <laughs> not want to go down. Our manufactured wrath found in the form of others' opinions and standards, and morphed into our own opinions and standards, becomes the only benchmark we have for success and happiness. As we grow in anxiety, we must work harder, scroll longer, shout louder, but all we get in turn is more condemnation, more retribution, and more anxiety. There was a New York Times story last fall on the growth of anxiety in adolescence, which is a real problem, Um, And One high school student described how his fears of failure grow into debilitating anxiety. He said that he would often begin by simply worrying about a bad grade in a class and that would lead him to worrying about getting into the right college, which would lead to him being anxious about getting the right job and then ultimately lead him to thoughts of total failure. Total failure, what is this? What does it actually mean to be a total failure? For some, it may be failure to succeed. For others, failure to acquire wealth or status. Perhaps it's failure to be loved by another. Yet if we clear out all of these distractions, total failure is the same for all of us. Total failure is simply death, because death is the end of us. It's the end of all our attempts to do better, be better, and live better. So it turns out, our fears are no different than the fears of 16th century Germans during the time of the Reformation, and perhaps of all people throughout all of time. My life draws near to Sheol, cries the psalmist. Sheol, the land of the dead, the grave. The psalmist is honest about the root of his despair and anxiety, and that they come from the reality that death is where he's headed. Are we that honest? The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans. And so the two are inextricably linked in this life. Just as we all must come face to face with death, we must also come face to face with our sin. Our sin, your sin, and my sin. These make us deserving of the wrath of God to be cut off from his view. So no wonder our consciences are burdened. In the other words of Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? The wrath we have been discussing that comes from our daily anxieties and daily worries, this too is an expression of God's wrath in the face of a world broken, disoriented, and in need of Him. Lutheran theologian Mark Mattes says the following about this reality: The problem is not an absence of anxious consciences such that the doctrine of justification is irrelevant but rather that people fail to discern and critique the idols by which they justify themselves. The doctrine of justification ever looks to the first commandment with both its promise, I am the Lord your God, meaning I will provide for you, and its threat, since I am the Lord your God, you are not your own god or goddess for yourself, nor can anything else serve as God for you. That people are unaware that they are under God's wrath, does not mean that they are unaffected by it. The truth of God's wrath remains the same for all of us, no matter how far we run away from it or how distracted we keep ourselves from it. God's wrath exposes the true nature of our hearts and our wishes. We see this in Romans 1, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. The good, holy, and true nature of God sears against our sinful nature and world, pointing us over and over again to the fact that try as we may, we are not God. This is a reality that as sinners we do not like. In fact, we hate it. We war against it as we distract ourselves with our own works and self-made attempts at righteousness. We convince ourselves that our works are good and it's God's works that are wicked. We do not want to face an all-powerful God because we do not want to be reminded that we need an all-saving God. So we flee from the only true God who is both. Death, wrath, and unfectum, these will always be a reality for the sinner, whether it's the sinner who does not know Christ or the sinner saint who does. It does not matter how many distractions we heap on top. But God's law will always have its way with us, as Luther tells us in his Heidelberg Disputation. He says, The Lord humbles and terrifies us by means of the law and the witness of our sins, so that we appear in our own eyes, as well as those of all men, to be nothing, foolish and wicked, for this is what we actually are. Insofar as we know and confess this, there is no former majesty in us, but our life is buried in God, having ourselves nothing except sin, foolishness, death, and hell. So, am I saying a terrified conscience is what saves you? No. What saves us is knowing God is not just perfectly righteous and all-powerful, but that he is perfectly loving, gracious, and forgiving, and saving. We know God is these things because he tells us he is so. He has fulfilled his promises to be so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot flee from anxiety of any type unless we flee from it to the cross. And so for the Christian, wrath and onfectum do not have the final say. It's God's promises found in his word that remind us of his faithfulness as we free, and free us as we finally are able to call a thing what it is. On account of Christ, we are able to name ourselves as sinful and God as God. God uses his law to lay us bare and remind us that he is the one and only and that we are not. Isaiah calls this his alien work. Alien because it is strange and foreign to the way that God wants to be known by us through his proper work, the loving and saving work done through the gospel. The gospel is the good news that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, anxiously attempting to justify ourselves, Christ died for us. He did this that we might no longer be under the wrath of the perfect one because we have been cloaked in his righteousness. And this is where it's good to make another point because perhaps your infecting does not come from doubt that God will save you, but more from the idea that God will save you, but he's really kind of unhappy about it. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really like you. He's just doing it out of obligation. But faith in Christ doesn't just mean we are forgiven, nor that we are just cloaked in righteousness. It means that we are actually given his righteousness. It's imputed to us so that when he looks at us, he is perfectly pleased. He does not see a nagging to do when he sees you. All he sees is Christ. It's not unfectum in and of itself that brings us closer to the Father. Seeking after pangs of the conscience is not faith. This is simply works righteousness of the masochistic variety. The point is not to get lost in unfectum or your daily anxiety, nor to flee from it. The point is that when we feel anxious about the little things or the big things, we are reminded of Christ's words that are for us and about us, and the fact that they remain true no matter how we feel. Right in the middle of his lament, the psalmist asks God, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? These questions beg the answer. If the dead are not raised, there are no wonders to be praised. Thus, we must be raised from the dead. Only in being raised can we declare these wonders. Only in being freed from the darkness can we know his steadfast love. If death is not reversed, everything we feel from our infecting is true. And yet, faith in Christ tells us this is not the case. So in a psalm where there seems to be no hope, we find hope. And 1 Corinthians 15 explains how this hope is made possible. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is the answer to the psalmist's despair. He is the answer to our questions of despair, both in this life and in the next. He is the only answer. This does not mean that we will not still feel anxious, and some of us more than others. But it does mean that even in the most overwhelming of anxieties, we can know that these two have been conquered, as we hope for the reality of the not yet. It's Christ who dies a death against death, as Luther would say. In conquering death and sin, he conquers our fear of ultimate failure. And furthermore, he reconciles us to himself. Given faith in Christ, we are free to believe God is a God of mercy and grace, not a God of anger and wrath. We are free to see God as he truly is, and therefore we are freed from our anxieties. On the cross, Christ took on the wrath of God so that we would not have to. And in doing so, he experienced the reality of unfectum, a reality we will never know. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to feel the hounding of sin, death, and the devil, and even more defeat from all three. It's this defeat that gives him victory in his resurrection. His victory and all of its spoils are given to you today because he says it is so right now, this very moment, you are forgiven of your sins. You are free from your anxiety, and you have eternal life, not cut off from his sight, but living in loving kindness. You will continue to feel the symptoms of infectum and your daily anxieties in this life, and you will certainly continue to struggle with distraction. But despite your feelings and your worries and your anxieties, The truth is that in Christ, you are are no longer under the wrath of God. He is the God of salvation, and you are the one he has saved. Go in peace. Thanks. I guess I can answer questions. We have some time. What's your dog's Instagram handle? Very important. At... Topo, T-O-P-O, the Sheep-a-doodle. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, whenever yeah. you're facing like an anxious moment or time, what, how do you remind yourself that Christ is the comfort and the answer? Yeah. I think um, that's always a great time for prayer. Um, And I think really one of the best ways is hearing the words of forgiveness on account of Christ from someone else. So sharing in that moment with someone that you're experiencing that doubt and um, having them proclaim forgiveness over you is probably one of the most helpful ways to deal with that. That is a great question. I do not, I mean I know he was already writing about it I think when he wrote the 95 Theses. I don't know if he had named it. But um, early on that was something he was obviously dealing with um, and that was a huge part of his kind of his conversion story if you will. Um, But yeah, that's a good question. Says it, Dr. Paulson says it's right, so <laughs> 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 we'll go with that. Before the 95 Theses, that's okay. 1517, as you've Luther yes. 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 was already <laughs> talking about this in 1505, wow. mm. but he hadn't yet discovered the escape from a, that she gave us. Beautiful. Well, I think that's it. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Hang out. Get some coffee.